bow your heads and pray with me for just a moment. Lord, thank you for the word that's read to us. It's your mighty word. Your word that has changed lives and continues to change lives. Might we honor your word as we open, as we listen. Might your spirit find receptive hearts that we might grow to be like Christ. This we ask in his name. Amen. I want to tell you stories about two churches to introduce you to a third church this morning. The first church I want to tell you about is the beginnings of Northfield Baptist Church. The roots of this church come out of a, a grandmother's prayer for her grandson. He was a World War II sailor, and after a great time and many years of indecision, he found himself adrift in the Atlantic Ocean. And in that time of, of crisis, Calvin Farrell made a covenant with the Lord that he would preach God's word if only God would save his life and bring him back home. Well, God saw fit to do that. He made it home, and keeping his promise, he came to his grandma and he asked her to call the family together for a prayer meeting. That was the start of weekly prayer meetings in the home of... Mrs. Rachel Grandma Burns, and at the home, uh, homes of other friends and relatives. And, and during some of those prayer meetings, they began to talk about the need for a church in Northfield Village, which eventually came to fruition, and they discussed uh, a, a new building, a place to meet, which they acquired property on Heights Avenue and uh, constructed a building. It's still there on Heights Avenue, by the way, uh, just up the street from where we live. Uh, it's, a, it's a home uh, these days. The first church services were held there on October 16, 1949. Pastor Farrell, Calvin Farrell, felt the need uh, for Bible training, so he, he enrolled in the Kentucky Mountain Preachers Bible School in Pineville, Kentucky. And uh, he went off for training. When he returned... Uh, back to this area. He was examined and ordained for ministry by Reverend Dallas Billington at the Akron Baptist Temple in Akron, Ohio. And then on April 29th, 1951, the Village Baptist Church formally organized. A week later, uh, there at the beginning of May, 19 people were baptized by Reverend Farrell at the Akron Baptist Temple. The charter members of the, of the new church numbered 25 adults and eight young people. One of those charter members was named Laverne Wilshire, who later became Laverne Rogers. Two years later, it was in July of 1953, Pastor Farrell resigned as the pastor of the Village Baptist Church. He believed that God wanted him to be a missionary preacher to the people of West Virginia. Two months later, a unanimous call was extended to Lynn Rogers to become their pastor. 
What's interesting is at, at, at the same time that was going on, God was, uh, God was uh, working in, in the heart of a new Christian, a young Christian, and I say young, not so much age, but just a new believer named Harry Hemminger. He had a wife, he had two grown daughters, and he felt called to take night classes at Baptist Bible Institute. Uh, for those of you familiar with that history, Baptist Bible Institute later became Cedarville University. God burdened his heart to, to preach the gospel, and, and the question that was on his mind was, where should I go do that? And that question for him was answered as he looked and he saw spiritual soil, he said, in, in Northfield Center. And so he began door-to-door calling in that community. One of his first contacts was at the home of Carl and Laura Walters. And that home is just up Boyden Road here. Within the next year, Carl Walters was saved, and not long after, uh, prayer meetings were being held there in the Walters' home and church services. And in time, uh, this new group rented the Northfield Center Town Hall. You see it there just up the road from us. Sunday services were started there on October 2nd, 1949. And as they continued a visitation. They continued, especially reaching out to, to families. They, the children began to attend. The Temples, a couple who lived in North Royalton, they were members of the Baptist Church. They were, they were burdened for their daughter and her three girls. And so they decided that they would make the trip from North Royalton to Northfield in order for them to attend this new Sunday school. Along the way, they began to pick up Frank and Ruby Valentine's children on their way to church. Over time, they influenced a couple of the Millers to attend, who in turn encouraged their daughter, Janet Bauer, to attend this new church. The Northfield Center Baptist Church was formally organized on February 14, 1951, with Harry Hemminger as their pastor. After they had met in the town hall for three years, uh, the Northfield Center trustees notify the church that they were going to have to find a new, pl- a, new ma- a new meeting place because changes that were being made in the hall. And not only that, they were going to double the rent uh, from $3.50 per service to $7 per service. Not only that, it was interesting to read that, that complaints had actually been registered from some in the community as community taxpayers that outsiders were holding church services in their town hall while there were already churches in the center. So the congregation uh, had been, they'd been saving money. They'd, you know, realized they were going to need to relocate, and they, they looked at locations in, uh, in Willow Glen. They looked at a location in Twinsburg. Um, they looked at, at a double lot located down Old 8 here next to what used to be an old airport, so longtime residents know that there used to be a little airport down there. They looked at a double lot. Um, they, they made an offer, but it was interesting. The owner refused to sell. You know why he refused to sell? He found out it was going to be used for a church. But you know, God was in all of that. The two churches that, that are sort of beginning simultaneously, uh, they, they they'd held united meetings in, in, in 1952, but they never really contemplated a merger until 1954 when when the, the Northfield Center Church was not able to, to secure property to relocate. So they began discussions and work 
commenced that year regarding a merger, which formally happened on July 1st, 1954, with Lynn Rogers as the pastor of this newly merged church and Harry Hemminger as the pastor emeritus. And over the next two years, they continued to meet in the building that they had up in the village. They ran out of space, and when more space was needed, the church secured a place to meet in the, in the Lee Eaton School there on, on Ledge Road. And when it became clear that they weren't going to be able to expand facilities, they, they began to search for a new location, which culminated in the acquisition of our present location. And on December 7th, 1958, services were moved to this site. You know, in the, in the 1961 annual report, uh, this was written. Pastor asked for earnest prayer for power to aid him in reaching lost souls and in guiding the church members into dedicated lives so that they also might be soul winners for him. This year, Northfield Baptist Church will turn 66. We remain committed to prayer, to preaching the word of God, and to reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second church I want to tell you about, I, I, I mention it because it is, it, not in a huge way, but it has a connection to the NBC story. And I already brought it up if you, were, if you hadn't fallen asleep yet. Calvin Farrell, as I mentioned, uh, the first pastor of the Village Church, was ordained by Reverend Charles Billington at the Akron Baptist Temple in 1951. And, and as I mentioned, 19 of Northfield Village Baptist's first members were baptized there. Charles Billington was the founding pastor of the Akron Baptist Temple. He became nationally known uh, through radio and television. Akron Baptist Temple was considered one of the first megachurches in America. It was started 1934 with 14 people, officially organized as a church in 1935. By 1936, the church had grown to more than 1,000. They dedicated a new auditorium in 1949, and, and, and at that dedication, not there in the auditorium, but at that dedication, 38,000 people were present. And they recorded 100 professions of faith. In 1969, it was listed as the largest church in America. And at that, in that time and in that era, they, they were measuring churches by Sunday school attendance. In 1969, it was number one on that list. In 2015, there was an article in the Akron Beacon Journal that noted that attendance at the Akron Baptist Temple was at 600. That their 30-acre, 260,000-plus square foot building was up for sale. The building was sold in 2018. They were, they'd gotten plan. They could not, cost-wise, maintain this massive facility. Uh, it was sold, and then actually there was an article just last year. It was back on the market. And as far as I know, it still sits empty. And in the midst of all that, and I was just trying to read and, and, and track down some things, but in the midst of all that, Akron Baptist Temple gradually dissipated. And today it no longer exists. 
on, on the one hand, that, that might be surprising and shocking. But, but on, on the other hand, it's not researchers. I mean, and there are those who are really researching church life and, and dynamics, especially here uh, in, you know, in America. Researchers tell us that 60 to 80 years, that's what they're finding. It's, it's, it's not divinely ordained in Scripture. This is just what they're finding. 60 to 80 years is the norm for a, lo- a local church lifespan. Now, there are, of course, exceptions. So, you know, we could immediately jump and say, yes, but, yeah, there are always exceptions. But exceptions don't dictate the norm. The norm is they're finding 60 to 80 years. And what they find is that usually at the 60 to 80-year mark, a church will either go through a merger or it will go through a name change or it will go through some other major change or it will close. That's what they're discovering. That's what the research is showing. Akron Baptist Temple, which was once the largest church in America, made it to just over 80. Just over 80. We're coming up on 66. And so, you know, if you just look at the, at the norms, we're, we're, we're coming into that zone. We can't go back to 1954 and start again, and and we don't need to. But we can remember our beginnings, and that's why I wanted to share the story of our beginnings. Prayer meetings, a burden to proclaim the gospel, a vision to establish a witness for Jesus Christ in this community. That constantly needs renewal, constantly needs renewal. In a church. I'm currently part of a revitalization initiative in our state through some capacities that I'm working with, working with, uh, with our, our friend and brother down in Akron, Ken Lowe. And Ken came into a revitalization work in Akron. And uh, if you know the story of, of that, what used to be three rather thriving churches in, in Akron uh, all began to really decline and, and, uh, and down to nothing. And and where Ken now pastors Hope Baptist Church there on Highview Avenue in Akron is the merger of three churches, two of which closed. But three churches came together and, and merged and, and seeking to reach their neighborhood for Jesus Christ. We're seeing the need for that uh, across our state in our own association. And I can assure you, it's not just in our association of churches, many churches struggling to make it. As we think of the need for revitalization, there is value to think about beginnings. I think especially there's value in thinking about the beginnings of churches like like the church in Philippi. That's the third church I want to talk about this morning. We can learn from this church. And we can learn from the letter that Paul wrote to that church. And, and, and what Paul wrote to that church there so long ago can be a catalyst in our own lives and in our own church for a revitalization, which must be something that is going on continually. The beginnings of the church in Philippi. In Philippians 1.1, Paul, Paul introduces Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. 
the deacons and with the overseers. Paul wrote this letter about 10 years after he had been there. Second missionary journey, they had, they had uh, showed up in this city, Paul and Silas. And so it was about 10 years after the church had been started that, that Paul pens this letter to them. By that point, this church has grown. This church is doing well. It's a beloved church to Paul. They're facing some challenges, which is not surprising. What church doesn't face challenges? But what were its beginnings? I think that's helpful to us. What were the beginnings of this church? Well, the beginnings of the church of Philippi are preserved for us in the inspired word of God in Acts chapter 16. And so I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 16, where, where the, the, the historical account is of, of the start of this church. And in this account here in Acts chapter 16, as I've gone back over it again, I, I see in here to, to, to sort of lay before us this morning what I would call three beginnings. Three beginnings for churches that will keep a church revitalized. So we'll just, I'll highlight them and, and hope that, that you also see, see it there in the text. The first beginning for a church that will keep it revitalized is a sense of God's call. God's call. We, we read in Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 6. Now, when they, this is Paul's team, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and there, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. Just as I read through that, hopefully, did, did, you, did you see the language of movement? Paul's on the move, second missionary journey. So he's gone back to, to visit churches that had been started on his first journey. So he's done that, and now he's, sort of, he's looking for, okay, what's next? Where do I head? And so he's gonna, his plan seems to be sort of, it, it's, it's either to head, some of these locations aren't easy to pinpoint in, on modern maps. He, he's looking either to head directly west over the western coast of what is now modern-day Turkey, or that were to swing up more to the, to the north. And in each of those cases, God says, no, not going there, Paul. That, that, that's not my plan. It's not the next place I have for you to go. And so, so you see Paul on, on the move, but you also see God intervening, not there, not there, and then this call comes, this, this vision that he has, come over here, we need help over here. And Paul, and it says in the text, his team perceived this, this, is, this is the Lord's calling to them. This is, this is his direction. And so here we see God's call and we see God's leading. And we see that God's direction is met by obedience on the part of these servants who are, who, who, yes, yes, they, they, know what, they know what they've gone to do, but man, they're not just bulldozing through this thing, you know, and sort of leaving God in the dust. 
I mean, they're on the move, doing what they've been called to do. Paul has been called to take the gospel to the nations. And he's on the move and, and looking for the next place. And so here, and, but, but at the same time, there is a great sensitivity in his spirit to the leading of the Lord, to the direction of the Lord in all of this. And so, and so you know, when God calls, he obeys. When God says no, he obeys. That's what led to the beginnings of this church in Philippi, that kind of sensitivity, that kind of obedience on the part of this church. Of this servant. You know, that, that really is no different today. That that's not an old model to follow. God is in charge. He's in charge of his church. Yes, he's given an assignment, he's given a mission, but he is still in charge of that. And he gives his direction to his church. He gives his direction to his people. And he does it through his word. He does it through, through the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who is building his church. Not any of us. Jesus is building his church. He is the one who commanded, go make disciples of all nations. That wasn't some, some church growth expert on a mission. That was Jesus who gave that command. And it's Jesus who said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. It is Jesus Christ who is the one who opens doors. It is Jesus Christ who is the one that can close doors. He is the one who has the right to say to any of us, I want you here, I want you there, and you, no, I want you over here. He has the right to do that. He is the owner of the church. Jesus Christ is the redeemer of the church, the savior of the church, the head of the church. And he has the right to tell any of us what he wants us to do and where he wants us to do it. That's true in our lives individually. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has the right to tell you what he wants you to do and where he wants you to do it. Every single one of us. That's what we call having an awareness of and living in light of the sense of God's call. God's call is not just on select Christians. Now, there certainly are responsibilities that he, can, that he can assign distinctly and uniquely. But there is a call of God that is upon every one of us. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, you know what his call is to you? Repent and believe the gospel. That comes as a command, by the way. The command of God, the call of God to the unbeliever is to believe in Christ, to trust in him, to give your life to him because of his sacrifice for you. Every single one of us, God has a call upon our lives. He has rights to us. And we think of God's call. This is, this is not a matter of just passivity in our Christian walk. This is not a, a matter of passivity. Well, I'm just going to like sit on my couch or sit in my recliner, put up my feet, and watch football until the call of God scrolls across the bottom of the screen. That's not what that means. There's a call on our lives, okay? A call in our lives that, 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 we are, that we are proactively seeking to live out. So, so it's not a matter of any passivity. This is a matter of authority. God is in charge. He calls the shots. He gives the directions. And that's true in your life and it's true for a church. He calls the shots. He gives the direction. Tradition does not do that. History does not do that. 
Preferences do not do that. Opinions do not do that. He's in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge of his church, not the biggest donor to the church, not the biggest personality in the church, not the person in the church with the longest resume. You see, a church that forgets that will lose its way. And I mention those things because I have had, I don't know if I want to call it the opportunity, <laughs> I don't, it's not that great an opportunity, to sit in enough discussions of hurting churches to hear that all of those things come into play. Churches lose their life, they lose their way. So it's God's call. A church has its beginnings in God's call. And a church that's going to live a revitalized, healthy life is going to live in the awareness of God's call. Who's in charge? God's in charge. And he has something he wants done. And he's going to let us be a part of that. So that's the first of these beginnings that we see in this church. The second of these beginnings is what I call gospel conversions. Gospel conversions. Uh... The church is made up of converts to Jesus Christ. And I use the word converts intentionally. Yes, a convert is someone who is saved. But but a convert is not someone who, you know, somewhere in the deep recesses of their mind, you know, however many years ago, they remember being in Sunday school and and their teacher prayed a prayer and they sort of remember praying the prayer, but there's not been a lick of following Christ since then. That's not what we're talking about. A convert is one who has been saved and their life is being transformed and changed so that they follow Jesus Christ. They follow him. The convert has an awareness of this call and they follow Christ. The church is made up of converts to Jesus Christ. If not, it can't be a healthy church. The beginnings of a church will be marked by the conversion of people to Jesus Christ. And there are three in this text here about the start of the church at Philippi. The first, in verses 13 through 15, is the conversion of a prosperous businesswoman named Lydia and her household. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city of the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. That's code for salvation. She believed. She was saved. And when she and her household were baptized, what does it mean, she and her household? Well, it's the same thing that's going to happen later on with the Philippian the Philippian jailer, and it's very clear there, why was her household baptized? Because they too believed. They too believed the gospel. So they were baptized. She begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So we have the conversion of this prosperous businesswoman, Lydia, and her household. By the way, for what it's worth, the first recorded conversion of anyone to Christianity in the continent of Europe was a woman. It was a woman. Started there. She was a God-fearer, we're told. Probably a, a Gentile who'd come under the influence of, of Judaism. And she, and she followed and, and heeded to what she'd come to understand. Paul completes the picture. 
as he does everywhere he goes. He tells her about Jesus Christ. The Lord opens her heart. She believes and she is saved. How do we know it's testified? She's baptized. Baptism matters, folks. You're not saved by baptism, but it matters. All throughout the New Testament, one of the first and most public, public ways, we declare that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And through the waters of baptism, the church comes around this person. Because, you know, we can all just claim whatever it is we want to claim. But there is in the New Testament authentication of those who would say I'm saved. And what the New Testament says, you bring others around them to authenticate that. And the church, if you will, through the ordinance of baptism is also declaring, here's a new believer. Here's a follower of Jesus Christ. Baptism is very important to that. If, you've never, if you are one who has professed faith in Jesus Christ and you have never been baptized, can I be honest with you? That's a problem. That's a problem. Spiritually, that's a problem. Perhaps one of the things that needs to happen in your life is obeying the Lord and being baptized. Her, her, her salvation, it, it's testified to in the conversion of her whole household. I mean, you know, they would have learned these things through her and with her testimony. It's testified through the fact that she shared with Paul and his team what she had received, with her family, what she had received. And then you see her hospitality. She's sharing her resources. Her home, by the end of the chapter, has become the meeting place for this new church. Well, there's a second conversion here, what, what I would probably maybe more call the deliverance of a demon possessed slave girl. Verse 16. That happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. They brought them to the magistrates. They said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs that are not lawful for us being Romans, to receive or observe. The multitude rose up together against them. Magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. They laid many stripes on them. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. So here they are in this city. By chance, run into this Slave girl, we're not told how old she was. She had a demonic spirit, which was giving her the powers to see into the future. She was a fortune teller. So she could see what might happen, what could happen, what would happen. You can imagine how that was a prize that would be used and exploited by others, and certainly that's the truth. She was a gold mine for her merchant owners. And she was their slave. We know from the account that she, she certainly could see. They said, <laughs> she's the one who's declaring who Paul and Silas are. These, are. these are servants of the Most High God. Just reminds us, listen, demons know who Jesus is. They really do. It was an evil spirit that was giving her this ability. 
But her witness regarding Paul and Silas was not a good thing. It was not a helpful thing to a Gentile audience because to them, God could mean any one of a number of gods in their pantheon. They had no background in this. In in fact, uh, in in an earlier chapter, in Acts chapter 14, when when crowds began to follow Paul and and then Barnabas, and they began to ascribe to them almost deity-type attributes, it caused a whole uproar. And, And at the end of that, Paul ended up being almost stoned to death. Paul commands this spirit to exit the girl. In the name of Jesus, he commands that this spirit of divination, this demonic spirit, come out of her. And it does. Now, it's interesting. Nothing more is said about this this girl. But I think it's very reasonable In light of of passages you read in the Gospels of Jesus casting out demons, I think it's very reasonable to believe that like like those in Jesus' day, she attached herself to the new followers of Jesus. The one who had delivered her from this demonic power. Besides, she was of no use now to her former owners. What's going to happen to a slave girl who's making them big bucks because she has the spirit of divination. And all of a sudden, she can't do that anymore. What do you think they're going to do with her? Very reasonable to understand that this deliverance in her life of this demonic power brought her under the power of Jesus Christ and into this new assembly. What a contrast to Lydia. (laughs) Here's Lydia, a, a very respectable citizen there in that country, wealthy, And here's this slave girl who was demon-possessed, both now believers. Then the third conversion, there's the conversion of the Philippian jailer. We read about that in verses 25 to uh, to 34. I'm not going to take the time to read down through there. Many of you are familiar with the story. See, this this miracle of of the slave's deliverance got Paul and Silas into trouble. They were beaten, thrown into jail, kept under the tightest security. You know the story how God sent an earthquake, it loosed the chains, it opened the prison doors, which is what God can do physically, that's what God does spiritually. What, what do you think that meant? I mean, here you are, you're a, you're a prisoner in chains in this jail, and all of a sudden the chains fall off and the door opens up. What does that mean? It means God has freed you, right? But Paul and Silas don't flee. They don't flee. Because God sent the miracle, not really to deliver them, but to deliver the jailer. And they see him as he's about to take his life because he's responsible for all these prisoners he assumes has run away. And they call out to him. They they, they stop him from killing himself. And he runs and gets a light and he comes and he asks them probably the most profound question that anyone can ask. What must I do to be saved? There's no more important question than that one. I wonder... Have you asked that question? Have you found God's answer to that question? The answer is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That is the question and the answer that lies at the heart of the church's mission. Paul shares the message that he shared with Lydia down by the riverside. He speaks of the Jesus who delivered the slave girl, the Jesus who saves from sin, and the Philippian jailer, Believes His whole household believes. 
testified to in the empathy of the jailer for those who had been beaten, bathing their wounds. Testified to by what? Baptism. Testified to by what? His hospitality to these followers of Jesus. What's, what's I think, powerful in all that is, is to see Paul and Silas, their, their joyful suffering. They've they've received injustice, they've been beaten, they've been thrown in prison, and they are singing hymns of praise to God through the night. And the text says, and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them. Their songs of praise to the Jesus in whose name they were suffering. I'm pretty sure that probably had something to do with those prisoners not running away when their chains fell off. And when those prison doors open, and it's not a stretch to imagine that some of them became charter members of this new church in Philippi. Three different, three different people, but one Savior. Genuine conversion through gospel proclamation, confession of faith, baptism, immediate evidences of transformation, most notably in the exercise of their fellowship with believers and hospitality and love of the brethren. Nothing revitalizes a church like seeing people converted to Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. You know why churches get to the place of needing revitalization? Because things other than the conversion of lost people begin to dominate their attention. Preserving what they have, holding on to what what is theirs, becomes a more cherished thing, a higher priority, a more passionate pursuit than reaching lost people. When followers of Jesus Christ start, start talking about the gospel of Jesus to people who need Jesus so that they come to Jesus, that breathes life into a church. It's a glorious thing. Sometimes it's pretty messy. Sometimes it's pretty uncomfortable. Listen, we're talking, we're talking a demon-possessed fortune teller. We're talking a Roman jailer. But that's what churches are made of. That's what churches are made of. All kinds of people. All called out of their lostness through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what churches are made of. The third thing we see in, these, in the, the beginnings of this church is what I would call situation awareness. What in the world is that, pastor? Verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let, let the men go. Oh, by the way, you know, just let them go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to, you know, to let you go, so, so therefore depart and, and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly, uncondemned, Romans. They've thrown us into prison. And now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. The officer told these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard uh, that they were Romans. Then they came and they pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and they entered the house of Lydia. And then when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them. And then they departed. What in the world is going on here? 
I mean, where, where is the, where's the Paul who, 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 if you will, rejoices in suffering for Jesus and, you know, and, and counts it a privilege? And, and, and what's going on here in, in what sounds like this pretty, this pretty bold, stick-it-to-them kind of attitude? That this whole thing is not about Paul being incensed that his rights were trampled. Otherwise, he would have said something earlier, or you know, maybe he did, and in and, and all the chaos, they just didn't hear him. But we know on a later occasion, when a Roman authority was getting ready to beat Paul, Paul said, uh, he said, oh, by the way, is it legal for you to beat me? I'm a Roman citizen. Ooh. <laughs> so what's, what's happening here? Now, now what, what Paul is doing here, he's doing for the church. He's doing for this young flock, this congregation that's just being formed and established. He is establishing a good reputation for this church. He's not going to leave town and have the rest of that city think these leftovers came from a bunch of troublemakers that entered our town who came to overthrow our city, who came to overthrow everything about our way of life. He said, that's not what we're about. One of Luke's points in Acts is to show that the Christian faith under Roman authority was a legal faith. And he called upon Christians, be good citizens. There's going to be times, yeah, you run into their authority. There's going to be times you have to say, we don't serve Caesar, we serve Christ. But other, you be, you be a good citizen. And so Paul, if you will, he, he's sort of paving the way for this church. He took the beatings. He took the suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ. But now for the sake of the future, for the, for, with their future in mind, not his personal rights, he stands up. See, situation awareness, it's, it's being aware of one's surroundings, and the potential hazards that, that one might face. It's being aware of, of one's own safety as well as that of those with whom they work. It's being observant to one's surroundings. It's making assessments of one's environment. You find Paul doing this all the time. All the time. He looks at this situation and he realizes he needs to do something a little bit more before he leaves town and leaves this new church vulnerable to others who might just want to come in and sweep them out of town. And so he establishes a good reputation, a good standing for them. Many, many struggling churches, they lack situation awareness. They've lost touch with their environment. They've lost touch with their situation. They're oblivious to their future. They're clueless as to their reputation in the community. They're insensitive to their surroundings. They lack awareness of the changes that have happened in their communities, in particular, and in culture in general. 2020 America is not the same as 1950 America. It's just not. It's not. But there is a recognition that both of those eras have something in common. Lost people. Lost people who need Jesus Christ. Listen, we can't go back seven decades to when two churches were beginning. We can't go back to 1954 when those two became one church. But we can go back to the beginnings of what makes a church a church. Because what makes a church a church in the beginning is what will keep a church healthy no matter its age. A church that constantly surrenders to God's call. Not its tradition, not its past, not culture's demands. A church of genuinely converted people that continues to see people converted to Jesus Christ. Salvation, transformation, baptism, the joy of of sharing one one with another in fellowship. Joy in the journey, which is what we're going to see in the book of Philippians. 
And a church with situation awareness. Those believers seven decades ago gathered for prayer at Grandma's house at Northfield Village needed a church. A new Christian with a burden to preach the gospel saw that the Northfield region was spiritual soil. So what does our community need from us today? Anything? Does our community still need us? Or since there's other churches in the community that preach the gospel, we'll, we'll, let, them, we'll let them do that. Does our community still need us? Is there still spiritual soil? People to come to Christ. May we surrender afresh to God's call upon us and his leading for our church. My prayer would be that each of us here this morning would know true conversion to Jesus Christ through faith in his finished work. And let's ask God for a fresh awareness of the situations we're in, of people in our lives, to help us see what he sees and to hear what he hears and to feel what he feels. Because no matter how old it may be, that is a church of the future. Help us, Lord, I pray. Your grace, your word, your spirit, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see that that our life together as a church and our testimony for Christ is needed in this place still. To see that there's spiritual soil where you're at work, and Lord, sometimes it may be hard to see where that is, and so all the more might we find ourselves before you because your spirit knows where it all is. Nothing's hidden from him. Christ, through that spirit, leads us and helps us. Oh, God, may you recapture our hearts with that burden, with that vision. Begin in each of our lives, Lord. For the one here this morning who doesn't know Christ, bring them, I pray, to their knees before you, calling out for salvation. To the one who's never declared Christ through baptism, convict them of that need. To the one, Lord, who sort of been ignoring maybe your call upon their life. Humble them in your sight to listen and to respond. Use us, Lord. Send us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing to conclude our time, as we sing and worship to the Lord, I don't know what, what the need is in your heart.